Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa, produced in partnership with Arab Studies Institute. I am Malihera Zazan. And I am Mira Nabulsi. Nine months after a group of environmentalists affiliated with the Persian Wildlife Heritage Foundation were imprisoned in Iran without any evidence of wrongdoing and denied due process, and after the death of the organization's founder, Kavus Sayed Imami, five members of this foundation have been charged with national security crimes carrying the death penalty. Uh, the NGO that covered Sayed Imam Iran and other environmentalists, because this is a global issue, they had a lot of international connections and could present their work in major international forums and particularly work with UN agencies. And that threatened, again, the power base in Iran, the more the society has connections to the outside world. We speak with Hadi Raimi, executive director of the International Campaign for Human Rights in Iran, about the crackdown on environmentalists in the country. Also this week, Amman-based activist, fiction writer, and poet Hisham Bustani joins us to talk about two of his latest poems just translated and published in English. All this coming up on this week's Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. Stay with us. Nine months after a group of environmentalists were imprisoned in Iran without any evidence of wrongdoing and denied due process, five of them have been charged with national security crimes carrying the death penalty. According to some reports, environmentalists in Iran are being arrested virtually every week. What could explain this relentless persecution of environmental activists? I put this question to Hadi Raimi, Executive Director of the Center for Human Rights in Iran, an independent, nonpartisan, and nonprofit organization working to protect and promote human rights in Iran. The answer is multifaceted, and actually, this repression and targeting of environmentalists started only in January of 2018 uh, when Kavu Sayyid Amami who had a very successful environmental protection NGO, together with his colleagues were detained. And within two weeks of his detention, his body was turned over to his wife, and it was alleged to be a suicide. There is no proof that it was a suicide. And actually, uh, I've talked to former prisoners who were held in the exact solitary room he was in, and they all claim that hanging yourself from a tall ceiling in that suit is impossible. So we believe that actually foul play was responsible because the body was not turned over to the family for proper burial or autopsy. The family got to see the body very briefly when it was rushed to burial, and his neck definitely had questionable marks, and there was not properly investigated that what caused we also know that he was fed medications and chemicals, which we don't know what they were and what impact they had in the outcome, mm. which was his death. Mm. So the suicide is very questionable, and I would say he died in prison under interrogation in suspicious circumstances. Generally, these environmentalists had been very successful in the past three, four years to launch public awareness campaigns and even change laws 
for protection of wildlife as well as natural resources. And actually, environment is probably the biggest issue that Iran is facing. Iran has been facing a drought and shortage of water. Traditional water tables underground are disappearing very quickly. Also pollution. Uh, uh, The solution is to have proper environmental protection policy, which these environmentalists were promoting and trying to get Rouhani government officials to pay attention to it. However, a lot of it is economic and powerful actors, especially within revolutionary guards who have been responsible for this, for helping the destruction of environment through, for example, building up dams for their own agribusiness, large agribusiness interests, feel threatened that when it's pointed out that these dams are doing more harm than good and they have to be retaught and policies have to be changed. They stand to lose a lot of money. So I believe there were two angles why Revolutionary Guard intelligence, who is responsible for this detention, targeted environmentalists. The second one is part of the general policy of um, Iranian judicial and security agencies who want to isolate especially professionals, academics, and civil society from the international community. Uh, the NGO that compensated Imam Iran and other environmentalists, because this is a global issue, they had a lot of international connections and could present their work in major international forums that particularly work with UN agencies. And that threatens, again, the power base in Iran. The more the society has connections to the outside world, uh, the more paranoid and afraid they are that their power will not be go unchallenged. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think because of those two reasons, because especially if you look at one of the environmentalists in jail today, who was a board member of Sayed Imami's NGO, he's a British, American, Iranian person. Before talking about his case, and I think this case puts in context exactly some of the factors of why these um, environmentalists being attacked. The name of the organization, it's a nonprofit. It was UN-funded, supported, the Persian Wildlife Heritage Foundation. Yeah. Can you give us a, a bit of a background about this organization and then talk about the case? Uh, well, Kavu said Imami founded the Persian Wildlife Heritage Foundation, particularly because there are wild Persian cats which very few of them remain in entire Asia. I think there are only 50 of them left. Yeah, very few of them left. And he launched a very successful public awareness campaign that raised national consciousness about this wildlife treasure and was able to get a lot of international support, including the UN. And then he had a board member who set up a mirror NGO in the United States and was successful to raise funds from Iranian Americans to support that work. And I think in general, again, having this kind of a civil society organization that is successful to impacting public opinion and getting millions of people pay attention to this cause was frightening to intelligence services. In general, no matter what domain, they don't like any networking or any group or 
our organization be able to reach millions of Iranians and impact their opinions on any issue. So now it's environment, and it's uh, even more sensitive to them because they were successful internationally. And also, um, Hadi, they have been always afraid of organized efforts. Yeah, and I think they were really terrified of Sayyid Imam's success to launch a national campaign, even though the issue was non-political. But as I said, there are economic angles that they felt like they're hurting. And part of it was to also uh, go after Rouhani government, because this environmental protection agency was working with these environmentalists and accepting their sound judgment and research and trying to change policies, especially with regard to water distribution in the country and the dams that Revolutionary Guards has built. So I think the uh, part of it is political, too, that they wanted to somehow find the excuse to tie environmental officials and Rouhani's government to these activists and through them to the outside world as a spy. And that's the charge they bring against them. They're saying they're spies because they set up cameras, for example, that all kind of wildlife monitoring does in the wild is set up small digital cameras to see the coming and going of wildlife and their behaviors and study them and protect them. These cameras are very well known. They have no range of more than 50 to 100 feet, and they're claiming that they were actually sophisticated devices to monitor Iran's uh, nuclear facilities in remote areas, and therefore they were spies. Eight environmentalists who are affiliated with the Persian Wildlife Foundation were working in a UN-protected area, and they had state-issued permits for their work. Precisely, by Rouhani government. Exactly. That's that's where the target is also Rouhani government for issuing them those permits. So they were arrested in February and they were charged with espionage. Since then, they have been in jail. They have had no representation. And now they have indicted four of them and charged them with corruption on earth. Right, which is a capital crime. Which is a capital crime, exactly. So what is going to happen to these eight environmentalists, and specifically to these four? I'm afraid they are pawns again in a political game, and it's all about saving faith. So when the Revolutionary Guards Intelligence arrested them, every legitimate domestic organization within the state, meaning the Environmental Protection Agency, the Environmental Committee of the Parliament, uh, people who set policy and follow environment for government, they all have issued a statement saying, we know these people, we know their work, this was not espionage. There is a misunderstanding going on. You have to release them. However, Revolutionary Guard intelligence is very much set to prove itself that all of its detentions and prosecutions have a cause that the entire state should be concerned about. So they become a political football between Revolutionary Guard intelligence proving it has a case, and now they are really ramping it up by bringing capital charges against them. Uh, versus those people who know what these environmentalists were doing and they're saying they're innocent, let them go. And a match of it, unfortunately, going to be about the international interactions and communications that people had. And again, those cameras that they set up for wildlife. Um, that, that I, I think 
this is a power struggle for Revolutionary Guards intelligence to assert itself or assert itself and not let go or admit any mistake. Mm-hmm. So this environmental is going to be sacrificed just for the Revolutionary Guards intelligence to show its prominence over Parliament and the executive branch. What does the charge of corruption on earth mean? Are they going to go ahead with this? So far, the lawyers have announced that uh, the charge has been added to fine charges, and the, the court hearings will be held under these charges. It's very troubling. This is a very general term in Iranian law, which is meant to be applied to anyone who picks up arms and commits an act of violence uh, for political purposes or against government uh, officers or armed services or any person. It's meant to be applied to people who carry out assassinations or political violence. Uh, I don't understand at all how the prosecutor could justify adding this to a group of environmentalists. Um, uh, with the kind of evidence they have against them. There was definitely no armed activity involved here. The most they can claim that the cameras were on behalf of some intelligence service, which is ridiculous given their function and role. Uh, And then to tie to assassination attempt or armed activity is truly bizarre. But the only thing we know is that this followed a letter by the Iranian regular army to the judge. We don't know what that letter said and what kind of claims it made, but the lawyer understands that the charge was added following that letter. Everything is very opaque, and honestly, this is just a political prosecution with domestic and international uh, angles and competition between different groups in Iran to really uh, show their prominence over each other in every domain, including the environment. Mm -hmm. And I cannot say enough how serious Iran's environmental problem. And unfortunately, this kind of actions that are keep away experts and international expertise from the country. We already had an international expert who was Iranian, was a professor in the UK. He went back to Iran when Rouhani got elected and brought his expertise to environmental issues. His name was Kaveh Madani. Yeah. And then he was the vice president for environmental affairs. When the detention started to take place early in the year, he had to flee the country for his own life. So I'm afraid this is going to keep away the kind of expertise Iran needs to address its environmental troubles. And of course, all of this part of the global warming going on. We can already see political ramifications of global warming in a lot of countries. Hadi Raimi is the executive director of the Center for Human Rights in Iran, an independent, nonpartisan, and nonprofit organization working to protect and promote human rights in Iran. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa.
Born in Amman, Jordan, Hisham Bustani writes fiction and has a number of published collections of short fiction, among them Of Love and Death, The Monotonous Chaos of Existence, and The Perception of Meaning. Acclaimed for his contemporary themes, style, and language, he experiments with the boundaries of narration and poetry. Mr. Bustani spoke with Khalil about his latest poems just translated and published in English. Hisham, two of your recent poems were just published in Plexus, the online literary journal, and translated by Thoraya Rais into English. Among the things I like about these two poems, both of them, is that they give us a sort of a nice slice of life there in Amman, uh, one of them more so than the other, Amman where you live. An interesting and in many ways typical contemporary Arab city with its own peculiar mix of tradition and modernity. And the first poem titled The Struggle, a beautiful metaphor on the ups and downs of progressive activists who go through difficulties, challenges to keep the faith with their ideals and values everywhere, not just in Jordan, but certainly where you are as well. This poem to me felt very Greek. It reminded me of uh, both Atlas, whose weight of the world weighs down on his shoulders, and also, of course, of Sisyphus, the heroic and tragic figure in Greek mythology. It's a humorous poem, short and sweet and to the point, like a well-executed uppercut to the jaw. I think the late Muhammad Ali would be proud of you, Hisham. <laughs> I hope so. I hope so. <laughs> would you read us this poem, please? Sure. So as you said, the, the poem is entitled The Struggle. It's originally written in Arabic and translated into this eloquent English by Soraya Arayas, my long-term collaborator and translator. So, okay, that. The Struggle. The world is a punching bag and I the champion. I jab with my right, I weave, I jab with my left, I bob to dodge an imaginary opponent whose punches land wasted in the air. My sweat flows heavy and I exhale breath after breath like a steam train. When my body breaks down and I throw myself against the wall of the club like a rag, the swinging bag slows little by little until it stops at exactly the same point where it started. Point zero. Your English translator, Thoraya Reyes, called uh, this poem an ode to frustration. What inspired this poem, Hisham? Well, the main experience that inspired this poem is the ongoing protest that I and other people from my generation were part of during the so-called Arab Spring, as I call them, the Arab Uprisings. These uprisings came from a longer tradition of protest, which I also was a participant of since the, the, the turn of the century in order to bring forth more democratization into our societies, more political participation, an end to the monopoly of rule by our governing regimes, an end to oppression. We wanted to see more justice. We wanted to see a, a more participatory scene where people can voice out their complaints and sh have a share in their countries and the decisions that are made in their countries and an end to corruption and oppression and so on and so forth. So I think by, by now we can see that things did not turn out as we thought it would be. I think there's a great frustration, which is, I think, we can touch this inside the poem and how it says about the uh, 
depth of control by the Arab regime. I think this has been the result of decades of eliminating all sorts of political organization, all sorts of politicization within the Arab societies. So actually, they were creating a political vacuum, a societal vacuum, which can be manipulated, can be intervened in by external powers like we're seeing in Iraq, like we're seeing in Syria. And the grand slogan that has been prevalent now, it's either these regimes or so-called chaos, which they contributed to building and they contributed to you know, nurturing over the years by banning and oppressing all sorts of political organizations, trade unions, political parties, and so on and so forth, in order to maintain their monopoly on power. So this poem kind of explores this idea of utility, but does not eliminate, let's say, the, the potential of future action. I mean, the boxer is still there. The match is still there. I mean, people against oppressive regimes. There are slight changes, but at the end of the day, I think we should start thinking about different modes of action and different political actions. And maybe, as the philosopher, the French philosopher Alain Badiou would say, that we should start thinking of political action outside the boundaries of the state, because within those boundaries, I think we are bound to failure. The rules of the game would definitely lead us into failure, and we should start to think about political action outside these controlled spaces. This is what the poem probably would be more, you know, the meaning of the poem would subtly refer to that in a way or another. Give me an example of these outside-of-the-state type of spaces that can Um, be... One of these examples is a campaign that uh, I am leading now in Jordan. It's a campaign against importing gas from Israel through tax, you know, through, through the Jordanian taxpayers' money. Uh, we are refusing to support the occupation, the Israeli terrorist state, and so on. So this movement is a wide coalition of courses and individuals and people, political parties, professional associations, and so on and so forth. And it exists outside the scope of regime legitimacy, if you want to say. So it is not legalized when it goes into political action, let's say political protest, or it wants to hold a a seminar or a discussion, etc., etc. It will never ask for permissions or any sorts of legitimization from uh, the regime. So it kind of opens up its own political space outside the scope of regime hegemony over freedom of movement, freedom of organization, and freedom of protest. And and, and this way, it sets its own base and its own role and its own connection to the public. So this might be, let's say, an example or an experiment in this kind of uh, modality, but I think these kinds of ideas need more discussion and I think I'm more of a vivid imagination to try to define, you know, the spaces that have been confiscated. For example, today you cannot imagine how life would be without the monetary system or without capitalism or without a for-profit society that thrives on competition. So I think these kinds of modalities reorient our thinking into trying to explore these 
unexplored potential spaces where actually a more just human society can and uh, can exist. They are also harder to ban because the, the Palestinian cause is sort of a sacred cause throughout the Arab world, at least with the peoples of those countries, if not the regimes. Uh, how has the new regime in Washington affected the relationship with the monarchy in Jordan, and particularly the vicious Islamophobia and the open contempt for and mistreatment of Palestinians? Has it made it more difficult to be such a dedicated vassal of the U.S.? Uh, and has it encouraged uh, and helped in some indirect way the opposition in Jordan? In a way, yes. I think the support of the U.S to different oppressive regimes in the Arab region, including the regime in Jordan, has contributed to curtailing and uh, weakening any actual movement on the ground towards more democratization, more participation, freedom of expression, all these things. Uh, with, the with, with the new administration, with Trump, I think Trump has also removed all sorts of pressures, even on the artificial, you know, external level. Before Trump, there was this speech that never uh, actually materialized into action about democracy and human rights. And what we saw was the opposite. What we saw was American invasion into other countries. We saw the secret rendition system. We saw Guantanamo. But at, at, with all these actions, there, there was some sort of a level where people were still speaking about democracy. Now, even this level has evaporated. So we're seeing the world in like a, 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 a complete... Yeah, the yeah, fig leaf, e even the fig leaf has been dropped. It's, uh, it's now a naked yes, situation. That, that, uh, and, mm. and this is extremely felt in areas like, you know, the Arab world, where, you know, journalists are being kidnapped and disappearing. There is no... What, there's no, what, no whatsoever pressure on regimes to maintain at least a minimum for a like an artificial, you know, appearance. Look for, mm. Yeah, towards these, these rights. So these are being pulled one by one. But in Jordan, there's been a peculiar like situation. We had huge demonstrations uh, four months ago that resulted in removing uh, the government because of international monetary fund intervention in Jordanian economy, raising taxes and all of these matters. So this grave economic situation, which was which mainly resulted from huge deaths on our country, caused mainly by corruption, uh, led to huge protests. Within that context, we're seeing also a geopolitical change where Jordan, in my opinion, is losing what I call functional role, barrier role between uh, Israel and the entire Arab world. We're seeing a different geopolitics now. We're seeing Russia in Syria, Iran in Syria. We're seeing direct relations or an, an alliance between Israel and Saudi Arabia and the U.S., which was this part of the deal was usually attributed to Jordan. Now it's open with Saudi Arabia. So the Jordanian regime is kind of hesitant or kind of thinking about its future role in the region. So the protests were not met with huge oppression, which is a rare position to take, given the history of, of oppressing protests in Jordan. And actually, the king backed 
the government uh, in response to the demands of the protesters. But now we have a new government for the past four months or two months, and nothing has changed again. There's been like absorbing the popular movement into superficial changes, but actually on the ground, nothing is happening. We are having a new tax law, which is extremely similar, similar to the one that led to the protests, and we're seeing the cycle again and again, which relates us back to the poem about somehow feeling the futility about like running in place, moving, you know, moving and resisting this question. What the description of, you, of the situation you gave me reminds me a little bit of what happened in Morocco in the wake of the Arab Spring, the beginning of the Arab Spring, where a new government came to the fore and nothing really has changed. And now Moroccans are in the streets protesting again. I think it's almost the same everywhere around the Arab world where regimes retain their power. In other parts of the world, I think we're seeing like a disastrous you know, clash between power between the fragments that the regimes actually manufactured in order to maintain their own power and, you know, eliminate any threat of organized political power to put them down. So we're seeing in Yemen, in Libya, the tribal slash sectarian warfare, which is also sponsored by regional and international powers like Saudi Arabia, the U.S., and so on and so forth. Uh, your English translator, Thoraya, in her introduction of the poems, speaks of uh, harassment by the censors and security services where you are and arrests for your writing and involvement in political protest. You must have had your share of challenges with the power structure in Jordan. Tell me about anything that happened recently. In Jordan, we don't have the what I call the vertical oppression that, for example, is prevalent in places like Syria under the Assad regime or Iraq under Saddam Hussein, where people would just be thrown in jail for long periods of time. They will be tortured and so on and so forth. This doesn't happen in Jordan. I think the regime is much smarter and actually resorts to what I call horizontal oppression. So the security services are extremely or very much infiltrated the entire scene. For example, you can't work at university as a professor unless you are cleared from the intelligence agency. Uh, you will not be acknowledged as a writer within the authority circles or the Ministry of Culture circles, except or the official circles, unless you abide by the censors and so on and so forth. So one of the most caricaturist, if you want, things that happened to me in the, in the very near past was two things. One of them, I was appointed as a member uh, of the editorial board on the literary magazine that comes out of Jordan University, the leading university in my country, which is a governmental university. And after maybe two weeks of the appointment, I was removed from that uh, position because the, the, the security agencies would have objected to that appointment, and I was removed only after two weeks from that appointment. Another thing that happened was there was an artist, a friend of mine, was commissioned to do a sound installation called Jordan, the Land of Creativity, where he was commissioned to record 
samples of Jordanian poetry with sound art and make a huge installation in uh, the Jordan Museum, which is the largest museum in Jordan. So he talked to me, he took some of my work and also he commissioned me to collect two other poets to represent the development of Jordanian poetry and poetics along uh, the past uh, hundred years or so. So I selected two in addition to myself and after the installation was constructed and within before the opening, three days before the opening, he was called and uh, they told him that he has to remove not only myself, but even the two other poets that I selected, who are two of the main poets in Jordan. So those two poets were also removed, and three poets who write poetry about the regime and how, how the regime is great and so on and so forth, they, they were introduced to the representatives of poetry in Jordan in that installation. The third thing that happened, which is kind of peculiar, was that Security agents would attend my poem, poetry, and short story readings and performances. I usually do a lot of performances in Jordan where that involves uh, poetry reading and short story reading in collaboration with other artists, musicians, etc., visual artists, sound artists, and so on and so forth. So it is unusual that security personnel would appear declare themselves, ask the, the organizers to, you know, harass the organizers and later visit the organizers and tell them, well, this guy is a troublemaker, should not, you know, collaborate with such a person and so on and so forth. So this makes it harder uh, on the artist and the writer to find his or create his or her own space in his or her own country. Most recently, I was um, hosted by one of the second largest universities in Jordan, Skodjarmuk University. And I was hosted there because a German professor of Arabic literature insisted that I am part of a workshop there. And I've been writing Khalil for 25 years now. And this was the first time ever I've spoken to students in many countries. I've been maybe in 20 universities around the world many, many festivals around the world. That was the first time ever I speak to students of my own country in a university in my country, Jordan. That was three weeks ago. This gives you an idea uh, how much depth the security apparatus can go and prevent a writer like myself from even talking to students from his uh, own country. So it's it's quite blatant. I mean, it's not as catastrophic as in other Arab countries where you wouldn't you would just not be sitting all, in a jail all, somewhere. But, <laughs> um, yeah, the Jordanian regime still portrays itself as a not so oppressive regime, and it actually um, works hard to co-opt a lot of opposition into the government. So, for example, in the new government, we had one of the people, one of the young actually protesters, who was. Uh, part of the uh, 2011 uh, protests uh, during the Arab uprisings, and was also during the uh, earlier this uh, during this year's protests against the uh, government and the raising taxes. Uh, he, he suddenly he is uh, part of the ministry. He's a minister, and uh, he's now defending regime policy. So Jordanian regime has a long history in co-opting opposition figures 
uh, it also you know uh, has a long history of let's say isolating people who do not yield and uh, this way they are removed from let's say removed from not just public attention but being influential actually on public opinion so you're not allowed to write in newspapers etc etc so there's no they cut all the access points and you become like a, a voice in the wild just talking to yourself and uh, your status is just neutralized and nothing happens i'd like to come back to the poetry now in your second poem on the brink of i'd love for you to read the the first part up to is this a city? <laughs> yeah. uh, you depict a slice of life in Amman, an interesting place that is at once unique and also at the same time reminiscent of other Arab capitals in the Middle East and North Africa. Could you please read us those first few paragraphs up to uh, Is this a city? Sure. On the brink of two men carry a palm tree downhill to the end of the street. Where are you taking your mother, you ingrate? At the end of the street, a dumpster. The men walk back, side by side. One talks into his mobile, the other picks his nose. A jilbab-wearing woman walks along the two girls. One holds onto the edge of the long button-down cloak, tripping as she walks but never letting go. The other, as soon as her mother throws away an empty juice box, she jumps onto it, keeps jumping and jumping. There is an ancient blood feud between them. The box has become part of the street, and she is still jumping. And the jilbab-wearing woman and her stumbling hanger-on have disappeared from the scene. Many cars drive by. Some speed up as they turn into the street, letting out screech of tires and roar of engines. Others are slow. If I hadn't been watching, I wouldn't have noticed them pass. An elegant young man in shiny sunglasses had his past glancing at his mobile every three steps. Maybe he's late for a date with her. If you have washing machines, table taps, iron pipes, water tanks, fridges, couches, batteries for sale. All junk trucks passes by with a boy hanging out the sides. Guys scanning the neighborhood windows. The morning is hot and the air is heavy. And nothing moves. No one wants to sell the junk and furniture today. More Gilbert women and small children. A huge stream of Gilbert women and small children walk up the hill. At the top of the hill, out of sight, is the mosque cherished center. The sound of lewd laughter. At high noon, women of the night step out of a car with a Saudi place and the street trembles from the blows of their sharp, high heels. The morning call to prayer. The morning call to prayer again, a slight difference. Prayer is better than sleep, it announces. The midday call to prayer. The Iqama calls out. Prayer has commenced. The entire Eid service from prayer call to culmination. Young men on horses ride along the street back and forth. A flock of sheep amble along, swaying to the rhythm of the bellwether. And, hush, hush, the shepherd shoes them away from stridial trees and neighborhood gardens. When his voice doesn't reach them, a pebble flying out of his hand will. Is this a city? Very nice. The so-called uh, Jilbab 
is ubiquitous in, in this poem. And describe this garment to us and tell us why this heavy presence in the poem. Is this a fashion that is relatively new to a man and that you feel is somewhat alien? The, the same way that Algiers and Rabat have been invaded by foreign so-called Islamic fashions from the Mashraq, like the Chador. Um, this is, yeah, this is one of the things. It's been an, quite an, a new, let's say, a relatively new addition. For the people who did not get what the jilbab is, it's a long button-down cloak. It has buttons on the front all the way down to the feet. But it also represents a class division issue because uh, it's the main clothing item of poor women because they would not need to change it. They would just wear anything underneath. Seeing uh, their hair covered, they don't have to do their hair or pay money to do their hair. So it's actually the class representative of poverty. And you can feel that in the street. You can feel that with university students, actually. And then you can feel how the poorer elements, the poorer women, poorer students, women students or female students would usually opt for this daily uniform that does not have to change. They don't have to wear makeup. They don't have to do their hair. So actually what we're seeing here in this scene is not just the transformation into a more religious understanding by, or a, a, a more religious mentality, but we're also seeing poverty invading areas which were usually middle-class areas where, you know, you have cars, you have, you know, relatively relaxed kind of life, but also poverty is expanding into these areas and more people are being involved, becoming impoverished actually, and thus uh, joining the ranks of these Jilbab women. Further in the poem, we will see a factory actually um, churning them out or endlessly producing poverty, this factory being corruption, being the state of the world today where only, you know, with its massive drive towards profit, uh, regardless of the human cost. So actually, it has this dual meaning where religiousness and poverty uh, meet. So it's a very strong visual marker of class. It's not just a sort of a mediocre look that's uh, hurting people's sensibilities. It's also a reminder, a constant reminder of the spreading of poverty and equality. Yeah, because the, as you said, the Jilbab women and the children, because all the time the Jilbab women will be having the children all children coming with them and going to the to get charity, usually through charity offices that are uh, part of a mosque. And this is a very shocking, actually, uh, scene to see this massive amount of women with small children just hanging around to get charity food, charity money. And this comes along with, with also new visuals. The capital, for example, people who what we call them scavenge to the trash cans, the large, so they just go into the trash can and try to get whatever, open all the bags, and the, so they make the living out of so that. These these things are rather new, and they kind of reflect the trend towards more impoverishment that has been, you know, going on in Amman and probably in other Arab cities as well. So this functions almost like a uniform, and it points to the, the spreading problem 
of inequality. Where does this jilbab uh, originate from? To me, it sounds like a new fashion come from the East somewhere, to me as an Algerian. Where, where does it actually come from, do you know? Well, I have no... Well, I'm not a fashion expert, <laughs> but... Uh, <laughs> if you can call I that think, fashion, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think it's not actually foreign, not very foreign. You can you go back to, them, to the history of the region and Damascus, so mainly especially the Damascene middle class, they were very conservative. And the women in Damascus in the early 20th century, they would be completely covered black, but not wearing the jibab, this particular garment. I think this particular garment uh, was introduced early in the 80s. I would guess the part of the Iranian revolution trend at that time but so, between the early 20th century and the 80s, I think there was a big span of women progressive movements. Women were no longer wearing the veil. You would see a lot of skirts, etc. You would see very few veiled women in the in, in the Arab world. In the Arab world, even in in villages. If you uh, well, I've seen like pictures of girls' schools in villages in Jordan. I would never have imagined that almost all of the girls were not veiled. Now almost all of the girls are veiled. Uh, so this comes in through the 80s, the collapse of the so-called, you know, uh, Arab nationalist project and... And the Iranian uh, revolution. The yeah. Iranian revolution, mm. and then the Wahhabi response to the Iranian revolution. So it becomes like a sectarian Islamic competition between who is the more Islamic than the other. And Speaking of alien presence and styles, you have both sheep in the middle of the streets uh, <laughs> in Amman yeah. and, and Saudi Johns who come all the way from Saudi Arabia to enjoy the services of local prostitutes. Are both these elements imports from a world that did not used to be part of the urban landscape in Amman? Not the sheep. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we're always there yeah yeah the problem is that Amman is built on one of the most fertile parts of Jordan is where the capital where the concrete is built so what happens is there's large areas that are you know that are not used for buildings they still have their fertile soil so after winter these areas will be like you know old green grass so what happens is that the shepherds would come into the city, into these open spaces, because they have these great grass fields where the sheep can eat and whatever. So the sheep have they've been always part of the Amman landscape. But once you, especially during the past 15 years, there has been this drive to, how can I say this, cosmopolitize Amman, right? So we have these skyscrapers now, large buildings like you're going to Dubai or a Gulf city. So now we have these extremely high buildings that are not usual to the Amman landscape. And when and beside them you have these sheep. So this is the <laughs> this yeah. is the funny paradox between this import and this actually very local, but yet a city that tries to portray itself as an extremely modern serum glass city where you have the sheep still there because of uh, poor planning and because the city was built on the fertile land and uh, you have this 
dysfunctional existence, I mean, between both these two worlds, which also represent the other side, the other dysfunctional existence of uh, having sexual tourism, for example, which is represented here by the women and the, the people with the Saudi plate, the Saudi car. So usually Lebanon would, would have been the the main, let's say, Lebanon and Syria, unfortunately, were, were the main targets or the main endpoint of such tourism. But since we have probably, you know, the war in Syria and so on, a lot of the Saudi tourism, especially, or, or Gulf tourism, in that particular area, in the, in, 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 sex, in the sex tourism sector, has become more apparent in Amman. So you can see how the war on Syria, a big political issue, now would reflect on these minor changes uh, you see every day in the city. In many cities, not just in the Arab world, the pace of change can be dizzying and disconcerting even here in San Francisco and and the rest of the Bay Area, which have been transformed by the tech industry, some say Manhattanized. This prompts uh, similar cries of discomfort from people here in these cities who find themselves displaced, can't afford rents. When you ask in your poem, is this a city? Is that a nostalgic question on your part, or, or is it a political one, a protest against uh, the trends of increased inequality, pollution, overcrowding? I think I think both, because a lot of my writing involves uh, resurrecting an older Amman, which I remember from my childhood, and which my also I, I also use my father's memories about the city. He was born Amman in 1937, my father, and he was, you know, like, way born and raised in, in this and he has seen also the transformation. So it's both a nostalgic question from one, one side, once you go into the other uh, pieces I've written about, about Amman, about, about the transformation Amman. I would also refer the listeners to a story which is available in translation. It's called City Nightmares, and it is published by the Los Angeles Review of Books in Los Angeles. So this also is it fiction or non-fiction? It is fiction. It fiction. is fiction, but well, I also use photographs from my father's times as a child in the forties in Amman. So it's kind, of, it's kind of meta-reality, meta-fiction, all bundled together to at least create this feeling which I which I have about trying to resurrect an older memory of the city which is now completely dead and trampled upon. So this is one. The other side is, is this city is actually a reference to the malformation of evolution of the city. So it evolved into a malformed entity, uh, which might reflect other cities, like you said, either San Francisco or other, other cities around the world where there was poor planning, there was no social justice, there was a lot of problems in, in Amman. We have a huge amount of problems, not just poor planning, but we have no public transportation system. Everybody uses cars. The roads are small. Yeah, and the massive problems. So for me, an urban space is a space of dialogue rather than a space of intense competition and in, uh, and noise. So this in this small sentence. I kind of recollect also the lack of so-called 
unavoidableness, if you want, if that's, if that's a word that can be used. Urbanity. Uh, mm. and, yeah, and instead of having a city, you have like a, a noisy uh, microcosm of uh, all sorts of different elements struggling against each other in, in this manner. So, yeah. How about the image in the beginning of the second poem of two men carrying a palm tree to the dumpster? <laughs> in Western yeah. in Western tradition, the tree is rather a, a male symbol, a phallic symbol, according to Sigmund Freud. Yet here, it is female, to mother. Where yeah. are you taking, you say in the poet, where are you taking your mother, your ingrates? Uh, yeah. is, is this different gender in Arabic, is that due to the language proper where the, the, world, the word for palm tree is a, yeah. is a feminine? Well, the word is in palm tree for in Arabic is nakhla. Nakhla, which is feminine. Yeah, feminine. How, how can a palm tree be a mother? Because she feeds people her, with her dates? Or is that a... Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. I think nature <laughs> in general, not just trees, mm. is the mother. And the humans are very, you know, ungrateful and destructive towards nature. So this is one of the... And the city, Amman, as I said, being built on extremely fertile soil, is actually a symbol of this destruction towards Mother Nature, towards trees, towards the environment in general. So this kind of symbolizes this catastrophic relationship and magnifies it. And the palm tree being, you know, in Arab uh, tradition is something big. It's not just a small symbol. It's a very yeah, big symbol. it's big, and it, it has huge roots in history and in literature, as you mentioned. So it's, it's, a, it's a very catastrophic end for the palm tree to be treated that way. Just unrelated, but also related. How was the catastrophic fallout from the Arab Spring affecting life in Amman, Jordan? for its small size, has hosted an incredible number of refugees from Syria. How's Amman coping with all that? What effect is such a large influx of refugees having on the day-to-day -day life of Jordanians? I think in Amman itself, you can feel the heavy weight of the large increase in population. The Syrian population are actually located in the, in the northern part of Jordan. A lot, so there's been a huge pressure on infrastructure there, especially uh, municipality issues like, you know, garbage, infrastructure like water, health, education. And I think people here are doing their utmost to accommodate this change. In Jordan, we don't, people would not complain. You will never hear people complain about refugees and refugees being a problem and so on and so forth, except for the government, because it obviously wants the international community to help and put some money in to deal with this uh, with this issue, like what is happening, for example, in Lebanon, where you speak again, because I think of Syrian problems. To begin yeah. with, half of the population is, is from Palestine and Jordan, so there's a tradition yeah. there of yeah, solidarity. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Jordan is a very mixed country, and it's accepted as part of the population. Many refugees raised from early the from the late 19th, early 20th century. So we have we have raised Circassian uh, refugees who are now Jordanians. We have the wave of uh, Armenian refugees who are now Jordanians. We have the wave of 
Damascene refugees from Damascus before even the uh, Jordan was found, etc. And then Iraqi refugees and Palestinian refugees. So I think Jordan in totality is a very diverse and tolerant society as such. But as I mentioned before, this has been a huge pressure on, the, especially the Jordan is a very poor country with a huge debt. The infrastructure is not that great. I think Jordan is one of the poorest countries uh, with water and water reserves. So there's been a massive pressure on the infrastructure. And it, it is sarcastic to, to, you know, to, to hear big countries like the U.S. or many European countries. It's ironic. Complain. It's very ironic. Yeah, yeah. it's very yeah. ironic, you know. Uh, uh, complain about you know refugees, whereas a, a small, a very small country like Jordan hosts somewhere between one million and one and a half million refugees. Many of them are not uh, registered, and this is why these numbers are not in agreement. But somewhere between one million and one and a half million refugees in a small country like Jordan, which had a population of nine million, it's, as you said, it's, like, it's ironic and uh, it makes one like <laughs> contemplate. The disastrous situation that prevailed in the world today. Hisham Bustani is a Amman based activist, fiction writer, and poet. He spoke with Khalil Bandib. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. And that's it for us this week. Voices of the Middle East and North Africa is produced at KPFA Studios in Berkeley. To get in touch, you can call us at 510-848-6767, extension 632, email vomekpfa at yahoo.com, connect with us on our Facebook at Voices of the Middle East and North Africa, or follow us on Vomina Radio. Please join us next time for another edition of Voices of the Middle East and North Africa.